G'day folks, welcome to the Finance Hour. I'm Ruben Zelwa, your host for today. Uh, it's good to be back on the show on this, uh, well, this sort of broken up work week. We're sort of somewhere between Easter, or Pesach and Anzac Day. Uh, so yeah, it's a bit of a crazy week, only a couple of days at work, but nevertheless, we are still here in the studio to record a show. And the topic of this week's show is shareholder activism. Now, you're going to be very confused about what that means. Some of you may. Uh, but now with lots and lots of big uh, super funds and individuals owning shares, the question is, is how are they actually exerting their influence? And can they make a difference to company boards and directors and the like? And to discuss that, we have Jeremy Liebler today, who's a partner uh, in commercial and corporate law at Arnold Block Liebler. So we're going to have a great discussion with Jeremy about this. Uh, but before we do, it is time for Ruben's Rant. Ruben's Rant. Now, my rant this week is about the upcoming federal election and the notion that Labor just need to waltz in and get power. Uh, everyone seems to think that you know they don't really need to do anything. Liberals have all fallen on their own sword and Mr. Shorten is just going to waltz in and take uh, take the premiership. Now, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think it's a, well, he may win, but I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. It's pretty easy when you're in opposition to just bag the hell out of everything that the government is doing. But when you've got to actually put up your policies and there are definitely some clear glaring faults in Labor's policies, it may be a different story. I also do think that Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg are definitely very good operators and are going to put up an excellent fight. So the notion that Bill Shorten is just going to waltz in and become Prime Minister without any sort of fight is a whole lot of bollocks in my view. Okay, we're going to take a very quick break and then we will get Jeremy Liebler on the phone. Okay, we now have Jeremy Liebler on the phone, and the topic of this week's show is shareholder activism. Jeremy's a partner in commercial and corporate law at Arnold Block Lieber. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ruben. Great. Well, great to have you on, and uh, I introduced the topic shareholder activism, uh, but I think that most people will still be confused what that term actually means. So, can you give us a, a quick overview of what shareholder activism actually is? Sure. Uh, and it's a reasonable question because, um, you know, what's the difference between a shareholder activist and any other investor mm. that is active in managing their money? Uh, but there is a difference, and most shareholders will, investors will invest in a company and, um, you know, on the basis that they've assessed the prospects of that company and hope that the value of the investment increases. Yeah. Shareholder activists, is a little bit different. They may identify a company that they actually think is undervalued, um, but they believe they ha can affect that change themselves. Mm. So they will, you know, take a position, often not a large position, and um, then seek to affect change, be that uh, an asset acquisition or disposal, a change of management, a change in the board, a return of capital. Yeah. Um, it can manifest itself in, 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 any, in many different ways. Yeah, well, when you hear the word activism, I don't know, you sort of think of social activism and the like, but, but do people, I mean, do these shareholders ha ever have like a social, want a social good, or is it really just about making more money? Um, so I would say social activism does play out, it plays out more in the US than it is in Australia so mm. far. And it's not so much about the activists having a, a strong social conscience, but there's a very interesting phenomenon in the US at the moment where 
um, with the growth and popularity of index funds, mm, um, these mm. index funds effectively control something like 30% of yeah. many of the large listed companies in the US. Yeah, that's and right. They, can't buy or sell, right? They have to hold those shares because they have to reflect the index. That's right. Um, so they tend to take very long-term views about value creation, and often they are very interested, the index funds are very interested in things like gender diversity, mm. environmental sustainability. So what the activist funds often do is they will issue a white paper, and the first 10 pages of that white paper will be about gender diversity and sustainability, and the next five will be about, oh, and by the way, we think should break up the company. Mm. And they do that because if, in effect, they can appeal to the index funds who own very substantial proportions of these companies, if they can appeal to those funds to support them, um, well, they've, they've got the vote and therefore the leverage on the board to mm. in the bag. So that's, that's interesting. Just for our listeners, so uh, obviously fund management, there's two types. There's active fund managers who actually research companies and try and identify ones that are undervalued and make money through active research. And then there's a huge number, as I say, of index-type funds, which all they try and do is track an index, like the ASX 200 or the Dow Jones. So they're not trying to add any value. And indexing has taken a significant increase. It's huge in America, and it's growing here as well. That, But it is really interesting, Jeremy. I'm surprised that the index funds are involved, because I would have thought the whole concept of an index fund is just to track the index, and kind of that's it. <laughs> You're saying that they're actually, even though they're not, researching individual companies that they they want to take a position that's i suppose gonna gonna i don't know still help grow the overall value of their investments it's funny I yeah well have, i, I think they expect- take the view there's you know everyone in the market knows they can't sell if they're not happy with an investment even if they mm. think management's crap they can't sell their shares um so how do they affect long-term change well they'll look at studies that show that having a diversity of opinion but gender background generally around mm. the table um, and that's what the data shows, by the way. It shows that having that diversity of opinion actually supports, um, it, it results in, in, in better shareholder growth and returns. Mm. So they will try and affect change over the longer term on these sorts of issues, and activists will use that in order to garner more support for their own objectives, which tends to be more focused on value creation. So how's that playing out here? Obviously, you know, the biggest shareholders here are sort of you know the big fund managers, and also the industry super funds, which I want to talk about in a minute, but let's just leave that aside just for now. Um, yeah, so so you've talked about America, but how does that how does it play out here? Is that do in, are index funds doing the same thing? Are active fund managers doing doing that as well? What, what's the situation so in Australia? The index funds in Australia haven't quite penetrated the, to the same extent as in America, mm. um, but but it's go, they're, they're certainly growing very significantly popularity, especially after the Royal Commission. Mm. Um, but in terms of uh, the industry funds, um, you know, they are increasingly playing a very important role in, in activism battles. And, you know, you've seen them get involved in ones like Perpetual getting involved in Brickworks, and there are, there are other examples, mm. um, similar sorts of examples. So the, the industry funds, activists are, will and are looking to the industry funds um, for support and I think the industry funds are now starting to dip their toe in the water and will explore what role they want to carve out for themselves in this space. I think so, historically there was some sort of a negative connotation associated with activism, you mm. know, associated with sort of green mailing and, mm. you know, holding a company to ransom. But I think now it's, 
it's become far more accepted and established. You know, it is literally an asset class in, in the US, certainly. There are many, many multi-billion dollar funds that are activism funds. Mm. Um, and in Australia, as you've seen, there are, are a couple of listed um, um, activism funds and, and, and also quite a few private ones as well. Yeah. They're not yet playing at the very big end of town here, other than what we saw with um, Elliot come in and in relation to BHP. Mm. Generally, it hasn't been at the very big end of town, but I predict that that will, um, that will change over time. So, yes, yeah, so, the US funds realise that Australia actually has a far friendlier regulatory environment for activists mm. than the US, so, so you're uh, saying, Europe or Asia. Yeah, so you're saying that the activists aren't necessarily the fund managers themselves. They're separate entity that then try and entice the fund managers to, um, you know, to follow their lead. Or you say that's it, right. Yeah. That, that's exactly. And there'll be different models, but I think, yeah, I don't think the industry funds are at a point where they're going to drive it mm. themselves, but they will now lend their support. And, you know, an example, it wasn't an industry fund, but um, an example was a matter I was involved in was for a, a fund fund management sort of software company called Premium, mm. where the long-time CEO, um, who owned about 4% of the company, um, was effectively terminated by the board, mm-hmm. um, uh, who you know had a difference of opinion in terms of strategy of the company he came he came to us and and we uh sort of led him through the process of calling an e g m to spill the board now he was able to do so because he successfully got the support of paradise investments who were mm. large shareholders in the group and um a couple of other large major shareholders as well but that was a situation where you know paradise you know they were a fund manager with fifteen billion dollars of funds under management. This was a company with a you know it was a you know mid cap company um and you know in the scheme of their portfolio wouldn't have been material, but they obviously saw an opportunity here to 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 be vocal and <clears throat> ensure that the value in in their investment was was maintained or would grow um um as much as possible now the other factor here that's playing into the, both the industry funds and other fund managers generally being more open to uh, supporting activists is that fund managers are under enormous pressure um, to justify their fees mm. because you will, if you look historically at most fund managers' performance, they either perform below or similar to the index, the index yeah. perform, um, but they charge very onerous fees mm. so that's why many people are moving their their um their their their, their assets their investments to index funds mm. you know warren buffett is famous famously um you know made a bet with a hedge fund manager that the index would outperform his hedge fund over 10 years and won the bet um yeah. so fund managers are now having to in effect justify their fee model in existence by not simply being passive but by saying hey we actually don't just pick stocks, but we create value. We affect mm. change within companies to generate superior returns. But at the end whether of the day, uh, yeah, that's the thing. At the end, people of uh, that or not is a different story. Mm. So that's interesting because, um, yeah, but at the end of the day, it bears out in their returns because the traditional way that they would say that they would try and get better returns is by researching the company better and and, uh, and finding undervalued investments. That, that That's the way that they would try to add value but this is an interesting sort of second second way that they may be able to but i guess i guess so so let me just understand so these activists that are sort of that, that are not the fund managers themselves what's what do they have what's their sort of business model i mean what are they well so they, they 
Look, the term is used broadly. An activist can be a high net wealth individual or a family who has mm. a substantial holding in a company and and want to do something about it, um, are not happy with the state of affairs. They're an activist. If they're going to publicly mm. actively advocate for change, that makes them an activist. And, you know, people like Solomon Liu fall into that category. Mm. Um, and his campaigns in relation to Meyer and Country Road and David Jones, very much an activist. But then you've got mm. others like... Sand and Capital, which is a listed, um, which is a fund, um, which you know has investors, and they take positions in companies with a view to affect change. Mm. They might take a view where they think there's an opportunity for a, you know, capital to be returned, and effectively mm. advocate for for the company to do that and, and benefit from the arbitrage, or you know, asset acquisitions or disposals. But that would need to be um, very big to, to, I mean, to affect like the big companies. Are they are they more? Are they more, uh, you know, going after the smaller companies? Because unless they're a very um, big, big fund, they wouldn't uh, be able yeah, to. Look, yes, and historically, yes. But what, what we'd see in the U.S. is many of the successful activist campaigns have been done with very, very small percentages of the company. I'm talking, mm. you know, maybe 1%. Really? The act, uh, unlike, you know, what differentiates shareholder activism from, you know, hostile M&A is that the activists have absolutely no intention or desire to acquire these companies. Mm, what mm. they do is, is they put forward a, a proposition, an investment thesis, and then they publicly garner, you know, run a campaign to get support from other shareholders to affect that change. Mm, mm, interesting. Um, yeah, and so you're saying that also uh, individuals can be activists as well. So... So that's when an individual has got what, a large stake in the company or not, e- or not even necessarily a very not, large stake? Not necessarily. I mean, we've seen these sorts of campaigns. You know, the, the CEO in the premium example had mm. 4%. So, mm. yeah, he was a relatively significant mm. shareholder, but not, not material. You know, Solomon Liu had a 10% shareholding in Meyer and something similar in David Jones when he, when he launched those activist campaigns. Mm. Um, so we can vary. It depends also on the makeup of the register. Yeah, the register that's right. has a handful of large institutions who are on board, well, you don't need to actually have a large shareholding yourself. Yeah. And, and how does Certainly this... you're, taken, you're taken more notice of by a target board if, um, if you've got a, a decent shareholding. Yeah. And what is this... By, I, mean, I mean, one person that's... I don't know if you'd call him an activist or an agitator is Stephen Main, who I haven't, I haven't seemed to have heard of that much, but he sort of seems to get up at the, um, at the various AGMs and, you know, have a massive crack at the boards and CEOs... Uh, is that is he actually an activist? And, do, and how does this do these uh, things tend to play out at AGMs? Do AGMs get get pretty fiery uh, when these activists you know jump up and, and challenge the board or the CEOs? Look, AGMs certainly can be, and if executed properly, you know it creates an ability for an activist or any shareholder to draw attention to an issue of concern. Mm. And if they know how to you know ensure that the media is there and it gets coverage and. Uh, and um, and the like, then then it can be very effective. I mean, Stephen Mania, he's a form of an activist. I mean, I think people take a lot less notice of him now than they did originally, mm. where he mm. was, you know, originally he was a bit of a thorn in the side of directors, yeah. insisting that they own shares, insisting they were independent. Yeah. But, you know, to be honest, he, he'd sort of lost a, a, quite a bit of credibility because all he did was go and literally buy one share in a, in a, in a whole bunch of companies. Yeah, and just go uh, and so have a massive he could attend the AGM and... 
I think, you know, that, that would be the other extreme where people just felt he actually had no skin in the game. He had no real interest in this. Yeah. He, Much he, of this was a publicity stunt. Yeah. The boards don't take a lot of notice of it. Well, we've tried to get Stephen Mayne onto the show and he's, and he's been elusive. So, Stephen, if you're listening and you want to come on and you feel like Jeremy's had an unfair crack at you, um, you know, please come back on and, and feel free to... Uh, Feel free to fire back. Um, but, Jeremy, the other thing which, uh, I mean, I sort of notice as well from time to time is these, uh, you know, executive remuneration things. And there's that, that concept of, you know, often these companies, uh, you know, the shells will say, look, we reckon you're paying the executives too much. And then they get, you know, it's okay the first time and the second time it's okay. And then the third time there's a strike. I mean, can you, is that a form of activism? Can, well, can you actually explain explain those rules because i get very confused by them personally sure so you know it's called the two strikes rule and yeah it's absolutely a tool in the activist arsenal which can be very very powerful notwithstanding that fundamentally it's a blunt instrument so the way that the rule works is that um uh, every listed company has to put forward a non-binding resolution to adopt their remuneration report which is the report that talks about how much they pay their senior senior executives and the board um, and it's a non-binding resolution, but if more than 25% of shareholders vote against it, mm. they get a strike. So it's a much a low threshold. Most other resolutions are 50% mm. or higher. <coughs> Excuse me. And this one is at 25%. Mm. <coughs> so it does create leverage um, for an activist <coughs> to um, put pressure on the board. If there are two strikes, two years in a row where there are strikes, well, then there's an automatic spill of the board, and that means that there's another vote to determine if the whole board should be out and mm. an election to re-elect them. Yeah. The reason why it's ultimately a blunt instrument is because after two strikes, that vote is 50%. So while you know a 25% protest vote can put pressure, ultimately the 50% threshold is required to actually unseat the board. So, so what you're saying that two votes of twenty five percent allow that motion to come forward to, to spill the board to be put exactly fifty percent. And, and so, so couldn't at the moment? I mean, what does it take to put a motion to spill a board? Is it more than twenty five percent? Well, to, no. You uh, shareholders with more than five percent can requisition a meeting mm. um, to spill the board. So that right, that power is there in any event. Yeah. I think the reason why, and that's why I described it as ultimately as a blunt instrument, mm. but it's still very powerful because directors, particularly of the more serious companies, um, don't want the reputational damage of having a strike, and certainly not of having a second strike, mm. because the way in which our director, call it non-executive director club works is, you know, it's a relatively small group of non-executive directors who um, are, uh, frankly, all know each other. Mm. And, you know, this one sits on the other one's board and that one then invites mm. her or him to sit on his board and it's all quite incestuous. And mm. what that means is it actually gives leverage to activists who can use the prospect of reputational damage to force a target board to engage with the activist demands. Mm. Because you know, no director wants their reputation to be tarnished, which would then prejudice their next potential board appointment. So that's actually an interesting segue, because you, you're talking about the composition of boards, and you're talking about before about, you know, uh, diversity and female participation. Um, so is the sort of, you know, you, you, you described it as incestuous, is the sort of non-executive director boards, is that 
yeah is that really like tap on the shoulder mates coming on etc is that is there no real push for diversity or has it not been successful you know getting different people you know range of people and skills on the board look there's definitely been there's definitely been progress and there's a lot of talk about it mm. um and this is not you know gender diversity is one part of it um, which, you know, there's still a long way to go, but it's not just gender diversity, it's just diversity of background generally. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the problem historically, the boards were almost exclusively made up of, you know, uh, 55, 60-year-olds plus white males, mm. you know, who all went to, you know, the same or similar high school mm-hmm. and university mm-hmm. um, and, you know, look the same and think the same yep. and talk the same. Now, and they, and and they wouldn't anymore. want to challenge each other because their kids go to the same private school or in the rowing team Well, that's together. right, but also they just don't bring a diversity you know, of, of opinion to the table. Mm, and, you mm. know, what's very clear now, the data, is that where you have people from different backgrounds, different perspectives, they actually have something to bring to the table. Um, so it's not that bad anymore. And, you know, we, there's a lot of talk about targets and boards, you know, there's a lot of pressure on boards to have some sort of gender diversity. Um, but, you know, uh, there's a long way to go, and I don't think anyone has actually cracked... Um, the code, and it's not just about having quotas or targets mm. and getting women on. It's actually about creating those opportunities earlier on, um, also to ensure that we don't set up these people for failure when they join these boards. Yeah, and isn't and that isn't sure that a risk? Know. Yeah, isn't that a risk sometimes? You say if you specifically target, you know, diversity, be it gender or on any other basis, and you have people that that take the positions that they're not really prepared for. I mean, that was. You know whether or not this was fair or not. That was something that that was levelled a little bit at um, Catherine Livingston of AMP. Um, that perhaps she was, you know, in a position. She wasn't ready for that role. Well, that I don't know if that was fair or not. That there were there there was sort of some discussion about that. Having said that, you know, you could say you know Ken Henry also got sacked. Um, but do you think that's a risk? Look, it is a risk. I think ultimately, you know, boards need to act their primary obligation needs to be able to act in the best interests of shareholders. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you know, the data clearly shows that it's in shareholders' interest to have diversity on the board. Now, mm. that's, that's not to say it all has to happen in one go and they have to make sure they've got the right people. That's the primary mm. obligation. Mm. And that's why this whole issue is not just about boards. It's, it's about creating culture within our um, sort of economy and the, the business world that facilitates these opportunities and the training that leads to it. But I, I think it's also very convenient for boards to say, um, oh, look, we just don't have the talent pool, mm. you know, available, so we're going to have to keep on doing the same and same. Someone needs to break that cycle. Yeah. Um, um, and it, it is achievable. It just needs to be done in a concerted and, uh, you know, frankly, common mm. sense. Right. But there's also, and I know you're involved in sort of communal uh, boards and the like as well. I mean, is there's also an issue if you sort of bring someone, you know, obviously diverse on it or from a different background, that if it's not right, that can be enormously disruptive as well. You know, have you have you experienced that yourself at all in in you know in, I don't know both in the professional world and in um, yeah in your communal work? Look, you need to ensure cultural fit in any mm. organisation. But cultural fit doesn't mean that everyone has to be the same. Mm. And, uh, you know, I mean, I can tell you, for, for example, professionally, you know, we find that people that have grown up in the country are a very good fit that work to work at ABL. They're down to earth. Mm. They're focused. Mm. Um, there, there's something about an upbringing in that environment that makes them suitable. Now, mm. that's not everyone 
who works in my office, is it was grew, grew up in the country. But that's there is still uh, so there is a cultural fit with people, and there are cultural without with people who don't grow up in the country as well. It's not about having everyone the same. It's just about making sure that there's a sense of cohesiveness mm. in the overall culture of the organisation. And I think um, that's not the same as having you know everyone that's the same gender or same background. Mm. But it is an interesting thing in a way, isn't it? Because I know for board members, they are sort of, you know, the shareholders vote on them whether they should be in or out. But it's not as though it's like this sort of totally open, you know, marketplace where literally, you know, they go and advertise and anyone can stand for the board. It's someone who's been tapped on the shoulder and then it's almost just, I don't know, um, you know, rubber stamped, isn't it, by the shareholders? Well, most of the time, yes, Mm. until, you know, uh, things go wrong, she hits the fan and then there's a revolt by shareholders. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, as a general observation, you know, it's not like there's a free open election and campaigns. There's a sense of trust by shareholders. The boards will do the right thing and seek out, um, you know, the right people um, to, to to lead the company. Mm. And at what point do um, do shareholders like say, no, we want to have a representative on the board? What sort of What's a typical, you know, is it a typical sort of shareholding percentage they need to have or, or what's kind of a threshold where, where that will usually happen? So there's no rule or no, no requirement, but, I mean, often you, a shareholder with more than 10% will start to have a conversation mm. with the board about some form of board representation if it's not themselves, even having an, an, an independent who they are mm. comfortable mm. with. That they're looking out for everyone's interests, not mm. there as a specific nominee. Um, but usually 10% would be the threshold to start that conversation. Mm. Well, what would be the case, and I'm not sure if you're, you're willing to talk about it, although you probably are because it's in the public domain, but someone like Solly Liu, right, he's obviously got a, you know, his main company is something that's in competition, I suppose, with, with you know, with Maya. Um, you know, isn't there an issue there that, you know, someone, you know, he gets a representative on the board, and is there an issue of, you know, confidentiality or the fact that, you know, they may use that information you know, to, to better their own, you know, personal thing? Or is that, would that just be a massive breach of the director's duties and no one would ever risk that? Well, look, in any board situation, there are potential conflicts of interest and mm. there's, you know, hundreds of, year of years of, you know, corporations law to help di- direct, uh, di- you know, um, and, and navigate, uh, so a director can navigate their way through those potential conflicts. Mm. It's not uncommon, though. I mean, you know, you had situations where, um, you know, Singapore Airlines had a share of Virgin. They compete on many routes, so Mm. there are mechanisms in place so that when there's an issue that comes to the board that relates to potential conflict, that director wouldn't participate. Mm. Um, And, you know, in the case of Maya early on, that would have been, been, you know, the same scenario. In the rare, rare circumstances, there was a conflict. Whoever the nominee is would have um, recused themselves from that conversation. What boards should focus on, frankly, is who are the best people with, you know, the expertise, um, industry experience to actually add real value to the board mm. because the rest of that stuff can be managed. Mm. So when there are like, uh, you know, when a company wants to take over another company, I don't know whether it's friendly or unfriendly, they'll also try and get, will they also try and get positions on the board? Uh, well, not necessarily because sometimes it can actually make it harder for a mm. bidder to get control of a company if they're sitting on the board of the target because, you know, they've got certain information in their possessions. If, if they're making a full bid and they're not currently a shareholder, no, they wouldn't normally seek a board seat. Mm. But if they made a bid and, you know, managed to, to buy a stake, a big 
little portion of the company, but not the whole thing, then they, they would often want a seat on the board afterwards in mm. order to keep an eye on their investment. Yeah. And, and Jeremy, do you, have you seen any, um, I think we've largely been talking about the positive impact of shareholder activism. Have you seen you know, how in any way it's been a negative or, or what, the, what the difficulties you know, with, this rising, uh, with this rising concept is? Well, look, the debate around this is always about short-term versus long-term, and activists are sometimes criticised, particularly in the US, for taking very short-term views, whereas, and, you know, that isn't in the interest of the bigger picture, longer-term mm. view of the company. Mm. Um, you know, I think that argument is becoming and proving to be weaker and weaker as we see these activist funds have, you know, very significant funds under management mm. and often advocate for change that will take some time to, to be effective and, and, and be reflected in the value of the company. Mm. Um, so there are, so, there are patient investors as well. Uh, even more there so are. Average, Maybe in the yeah. earlier days it was about, you know, short-term arbitrage opportunities. Mm. But that's not just about um, activists either. You know, hedge funds often will come onto the register of a company, you know, if there's some sort of transaction at play. I mean, I recently was asked to give advice to a target board of a very large company that was subject of a multi-billion billion dollar takeover bid and their dilemma was well since the bid was announced and now that 30 or 40 percent of the register had changed so that there were hedge funds on their register mm. and those hedge funds wanted them to accept the offer because from the price that they bought in at they made a very nice return for that period of time mm. but the board said well who in whose interest do we act do we act in the interest of the hedge funds who have just bought into this company um, and, and just want to make a short-term profit, or of the longer-term shareholder who, you know, we think in five years' time this company would be worth multiples of what they're offering now. But mm. obviously there's uncertainty, there's risk in achieving it. So were you advising um, the directors on what their responsibilities were? That's right, on how they mm. should make that judgment, mm. how they make the decision. And, and what was, I mean, you know, what, what are the factors involved in making that decision? Well, the law very unhelpfully says that you should act, you know, look at what the hypothetical shareholder <laughs> would want. And, yeah. of course, that's entirely unhelpful to a director needing to make that decision, needing to make that decision. Be I think, ultimately, the director needs to get advice, independent advice in relation to the value of the company, mm. the risks um, associated with, you know, the execution risks with the strategy that, that, that they think would result in greater value and apply some sort of discount to that to... to, to to make a decision in relation to whether or not the offer on the table is um, adequate. Hmm. All right, Jeremy, well, look, we're coming towards the end of the show, but I will just ask you to summarise, just, just one last question I'm going to ask you. Shareholder activism, is it positive or negative? Oh, look, overall, I think it is what it is. It's there, and I think, and I think, it's, and I think it's positive. Um, I think that, you know, it, will, it contributes to creating a more efficient market in Australia, um, and I think many, many target boards in this country need a bit of shaking up to keep them on their toes and, and making sure they've got their eye on the game and skin in the game in the interest of all shareholders. Oh, well, it sounds to me like it's only on the going to be on the rise because, you know, from what I see, investment trends here tend to follow the US, and, uh, you know, obviously it's growing there. I think, um, I think it's likely to be growing here, particularly when, I, as I think you're going to have a more and more... Um, you know, powerful or large shells, particularly amongst, you know, the industry funds and, as you say, the index funds as well. Uh, I, I, from what you're telling me, I think it's likely to be something that is going to grow and grow. 
I think that that's right, but time will tell. All right, Jeremy, thanks very much for uh, for joining us today. That's been a thanks very interesting me. discussion, and uh, we will have a good weekend and good Passover and Pesach and all that stuff, and Anzac Day, and uh, we'll catch up with you another time. You too. Thanks. Thanks. Robert. Okay, well, that pretty much ends the show for today. Thanks for tuning in. You can search any other shows on uh, on iTunes or on Stitcher. Uh, if you do have a chance, leave us a rate and review on iTunes. Otherwise, enjoy uh, your time, and uh, we'll be back again next week.